Welcome to part two of our special two-part interview with Alan Alda. His new science series, The Human Spark, airs on PBS stations over the next few weeks, with episodes two and three debuting January 13th and January 20th. In this segment, we talk about Alda's experiences as a fictional surgeon, a real patient, and an amateur scientist. Some of the other Siam staffers sat in on the discussion. The two other voices you'll hear are our art director, Ed Bell, and news editor, Phil Yam. Can you tell the story of how you got so sick in Chile and oh, what happened there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I think about this very often. Uh, almost, well, every day would be too much to say, but I think about it almost every day. Six years ago, I was in Chile doing Scientific American Frontiers uh, on top of a mountain. We were interviewing uh, astronomers at uh, uh, an observatory on, on Sere Tololo, just just a few miles outside the town of La Serena, which is not one of the biggest cities in the world. <laughs> and uh, I got this incredible cramp in my stomach, and I didn't know what it was. I thought I thought maybe it was something I had eaten the day before. But it got worse and worse and worse. I was waiting to go on to inter- for the last interview of the tenth year of the show. So uh, we were going to be done with the whole thing in a few minutes. By the time by the time I went in there, I was doubled over with pain, and we just barely got through it. If you look at that interview, you can, I'm all green, you know. So I'm, I'm now I'm on a bench, doubled doubled over, and they had a a guy there, a, a medic who I don't think had been called on to do too much in a medical way up there. Because he comes over, he sees me all cramped up. He says, how do you feel? <laughs> I said, well, I, I really am feeling bad. I had an obstructed intestine. So they put me in a, in a, an ambulance. It was like, a, looked like one of those ambulances we used on MASH. And it, <laughs> It didn't really work very well. They had a bang on the motor to start it. And they took me a couple of hours down this bumpy road to this very tiny ER in La Serena. And the doctor leans in and he says to me, okay, we've examined you and here's what's happened. Some of your intestine has gone bad and we have to cut out the bad part and sew the two good ends together. And they said, oh, you're going to do an end-to-end anastomosis. And he said, how do you know that? I said, oh, I did many of them on MASH. <laughs> and he, thank God, this this doctor knew he had been tr- so well trained in, in, uh, in Santiago and in Japan. He knew exactly what was wrong with me, cut me open, cut out the bad part, and sewed the two good ends together. And, and uh, well, the way the story ends, I lived. <laughs> It's the anthropic principle. <laughs> yes. yes. None of you would be it. here if I hadn't lived. <laughs> you, that's true. <laughs> now, you, you get home from Chile. Yeah. And when you were in Chile, you were, you were trying to wrap your mind around the space-time continuum and the shape of space. And Well, that's and, the, all through Chile. I'd been trying to ask everybody uh, – I can't picture the fourth dimension. How how can I do that? It, if I can't picture it, it's hard for me to believe that anybody can and that you can you can uh, get anything out of the concept. 
So how can I picture one one astronomer said to me, uh, why do you think that you're the only person on Earth who can picture this? <laughs> Although Einstein could picture it, couldn't he? He, well, well, he, you know, he was a practical joker. He he said a lot of things. <laughs> so the astronomers used to call him. Uh, I remember one interview where the astronomers kept referring to Big Al. Big Al <laughs> I said, "Who's Big?" Good. I said, "Einstein." What do you think it is? <laughs> but you come back from Chile and you have you're recovering. You can't really leave the house too much. Yeah. And you have this little adventure with a clock. That's in the right. House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I the clock was it was a big grandfather's clock, and um, it wasn't keeping time. It kept losing five minutes, ten minutes, and I and I I realized that my a friend of mine had said if it's the length of the pendulum that matters. So I extended the pendulum, and it started keeping real time. And I thought. I've stuck my hand into gravity here. This is, I got, I now, I can't, I can't picture the fourth dimension, but I just put my hand in it. And it, and it was a, it was a, a wonderful uh, experience for me. But yeah, I probably was still under some of the anesthetic. <laughs> but you know, you make me think of something that Big Al said. What? Which was that, um, his best ideas did not come from his rational mind. Hmm. In, I, he was talking about creativity, not, yeah, this, not the, the virtues the quote, of The quote about the imagination is more important than than what? Facts? Than no. knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. Right. The, the, a yeah. separate but equal quote. Yeah. And uh, so even though maybe you still didn't feel like you were intellectually in control of this four-dimensional material, maybe it felt like you you felt it. Yeah, but the thing is, I wouldn't want to cross a bridge built by somebody who felt it. Absolutely, we want and we want pi to remain three point one four one five nine, etc. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely not encouraging people to to uh, abandon their rational. No, but I do. I, I not to not to try to be stupidly funny. I do. I do. Uh, I do think I know what you mean, and I do think I I agree. Oh wholeheartedly about it is that there's so many ways to try to get some grasp of understanding and and uh so, sometimes it's intuitive and sometimes it's not and sometimes it has to do with just putting your hands in it some there's a a, a friend of mine who's a, a mathematician Steve Strogat showed me a a game where you have three knives you, you probably know this you, you have Three glasses, three drinking glasses, and they're on the, at the table in a, in a, in a, you know, like the points of a pyramid. And they're just slightly farther apart than the length of a knife, of the, of one of the knives, any of the three knives you're given. And you have to balance, you have to put those knives on the glasses in such a way that you can balance another glass of water on top of the knives. But the glasses are all slightly farther apart than the knives are long. Once I figured out how to do it and I tell other people to try it, first they're totally stumped. And then I say something similar to what you just said. I say, think with your hands. Just do it with your hands. Just keep moving them around until you find a way to do it. And actually, now I'm not going to give the solution now to anybody listening (laughs) because it's really fun to get a challenge like this. Arrange the knives on the three glasses in such a way that it forms a firm platform in the middle. 
in the, in, in the middle of where the three glasses are, and you can balance a glass of water on top of it. And then they can get in touch with you for the solution. <laughs> and get in touch with his lawyer for the uh, After the- <laughs> for the for the medical malpractice bill. <laughs> Let me ask you one other thing. Yeah, um, I've always thought that the rehearsal process is like a big experiment mm. in theater. Mm. That you have a theory going in that you have to test, and the the theory is kind of the text of of whatever it is you're playing, and and. You have to see if that actually works. And sometimes it doesn't work. It's a, this is a, a, I never thought of that. I think that's a very interesting idea. I don't know if I'd call the text the theory, uh, so much as, uh, yeah, it might be. It might be the, a, a theory or a hypothesis. Uh, the, the, uh, it, it's an, it's an experiment in a couple of ways because, uh, People come in, actors come into, and directors come into a, a rehearsal period with um, varying degrees of two elements, I would say. One is having thought about it and having an idea of how it, it's probably going to happen. And the other is having no idea of how it's going to happen and exploring one is invention and the other is is discovery. And I tend more toward discovery because I was trained in improvisation. And I, I love discovery because I can't consciously uh, put things there as interesting as things are that arise by themselves. Because I think there's more more going on in the background in the brain than you can organize consciously. However, other people tend more toward invention, more toward um, deciding how it's going to be and then seeing if they can get there. And along the way, they discover, just as I, along the way, consciously try things out. But I think the rehearsal period is probably a time where those two approaches find each other and... uh, and something new takes place, something you didn't expect. If it, if you don't wind up with something you didn't expect, then you're doing something you've either seen before or done before. And it's not going to be very interesting. So it's, it's experimental partly to test out theories and partly to discover quite by accident, uh, things that you had no idea you were going to come across. And that sounds a lot like, uh, science to me. Some of the greatest things, as I understand it, have come about by serendipity. Greatest of discoveries. Right, when you find something you weren't looking for. Yeah, you're looking for something else, in fact, very often. Uh, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that both of those efforts aren't useful. There's very, on, on, on the one side, serendipity, but on the other side, a very methodical, almost plodding approach where you leave nothing to the imagination. You just say, well, try this, now try that, now try that. Mm-hmm. That can be very useful. And it can lead to the very creativity that you're hoping for on the other side. This, I, I think about this a lot uh, as a writer. And I know you've thought about it as a writer and also as a performer, as a director. How do you know when it's right? Yeah, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there, you, there's a, you, something clicks in your brain that says, 
That's right. But yeah, what I don't is know. That? It's funny. I, I, I was wondering about that. I have a granddaughter who, when she was about three or four, loved art and she'd work for 20 minutes on a, on a, a painting of some kind. And she'd say, it's done. And I'd say, well, you, you know, don't you want to like, uh, use this part of the paper? She said, no, 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 it's done. And she was so definite about it. And I, I didn't know how she knew. I don't know how I know. Um, although I, I, I watch myself and I see myself just never give up, um, on, on drafts. I, I do, when I write, I do many, many drafts. I, I'm, uh, I just finished, I just finished the major part of a work on a play. And that was at draft 24. Now I'm on draft 25, but, but I'm just really sweeping up in the corners now. I pretty much know it's done and I don't know how I know. I, I just know. Yeah. Like why is from the Indies to the Andes in your undies funnier than from the Andes to the Indies in your undies? This no, is in no, his book. No one else will know what that means. <laughs> that used to be an old radio joke. Uh, I just wrote a book. What's the name of your book? From the Indies to the Andes in my undies. And, uh, and then you said you lived it. And I lived it because, uh, when I, when I was on my way back from Chile, uh, my pants started falling off on the airplane. <laughs> and, and, and uh, I was traveling from the Andes to the Indies in my undies. <laughs> and it wasn't as funny as going from the Indies to the Andes. And I don't quite know why, but there's something about, you know, uh, uh Neil Simon had that uh, wonderful riff in one of his uh, plays, I think, where, uh, I think it was in the, uh, the Sunshine Boys, where they had this long discussion about words with K in them are funny. Right. Chicken. Chicken is a funny the chicken. The turkey is funny. Bird is not funny. <laughs> numbers. Some numbers are funny. Yeah. Some numbers aren't funny. Yeah, that's right. That's what they say. 17. That's 17 a funny number. 17 is hilarious. <laughs> Uh, let me open up the floor. Does, does anybody have anything they'd like to ask Mr. Alda? Yeah, why don't you while just correct me here? on everything I said wrong? <laughs> that discussion you guys just had reminded me of a single line that, uh, that Alan used on, on MASH that just haunted me for, well, to, to present day. I still think of, of this line. I'm, I'm curious and I have, I'm glad to have an opportunity to ask you now if this was written for you or if it was ad-libbed. And you may not even remember it at all. <clears throat> Uh, but B.J. Honeycutt refers to some stuff that you've pilfered as as ill-gotten booty. Uh, and shortly thereafter, you refer to it as ill boot and gotti. <laughs> and I could never get the phrase ill boot and gotti out of my head. But Isn't it awful when the thing like that gets in your head? <laughs> yeah, but every time I would think of it, it would make me laugh or giggle. So I know exactly what I, I don't about. think I uh, wrote that particular script. I think that might have been Larry Gelbart. <clears throat> but I don't really know. And now it's been so long. I used to be able to remember the shows that I was in but hadn't written or directed. But then it reached the point where I could only remember the ones I wrote and directed. Now I don't know anything. I don't. <laughs> I pass by it on when I'm changing channels. I think. Who is that guy? Who is that guy? <laughs> what, what is he talking about? I don't, I don't know who wrote it. I mean, it's a terrible thing. I mean, this, this thing of how, you know, when you write, it lasts forever. Not even in your own head. Right. When did I know that? Yeah. 
you have any other plans going forward about any science-related projects or what kind of questions would you like to explore and answer if you have an opportunity? You know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I'm so curious about all the work that uh, scientists do that I don't have any particular question that I want answered except the, the big questions. Uh, the, the biggest one to me is who really are we and how do we cope with one another? We don't know how to do that. We have this uh, amazing ability to destroy one another. Um, we're really good at that and to destroy the environment, but we don't know, we don't know how to cope with one another's behavior or differing opinions or differing beliefs. Uh, and we're willing to back up that lack of understanding with weapons of destruction. <laughs> I mean, so I, I, that seems like a pretty good thing to work on for the next uh, few years. I, when I'm at a, at a dinner table, I love to ask everybody, how long do you think our species might last? I, I've read that the average age of a species, of any species, is about 2 million years. Is it possible we could have an average lifespan as a species? I, do you picture us 2 million years from now or a million and a half years from now? Or 5,000? What's the figure? I have Thursday in the pool. <laughs> well, I just have that penciled in myself. Alan Alda, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me over. Don't miss Alan Alda's PBS Science Series, The Human Spark, on your local PBS affiliates, January 13th and 20th. And check for rebroadcasts of all three episodes. Here in New York, they're on at all hours on three or four different stations. So as they say, check your local listings. You can also watch them online at pbs.org slash humanspark. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, in addition to playing Dr. Hawkeye Pierce on MASH, Alan Alda has portrayed real-life Nobel physicist Wolfgang Pauli and real-life HIV researcher Luke Montagnier. Story two, in what's called virtual gold farming, hundreds of thousands of people play online games all day to accumulate goods in the games that they then sell to other gamers for real money. Story three, computers can beat the pants off people at chess, but even non-expert people are better at identifying styles of art than computers are. And story four, burning tobacco might wind up being a good thing because researchers say that with some genetic modifications, tobacco could be an excellent biofuel. Story four is true. Tobacco does have a lot of promise as biofuel. That's according to a paper in the Plant Biotechnology Journal. Tobacco's been overlooked because it already has such large economic value. Tobacco seeds contain a lot of oil. If researchers can modify the plants to coax them to produce substantial amounts of oil in the leaves, where the stored energy could be released easily by burning, you might turn a killer into a keeper. Story three is true. People have an easier time identifying art than computers do. That's according to work published in the journal Computers and Graphics. People were asked to categorize hundreds of paintings into styles, such as Baroque or Surreal, and the people did way better than the machines. 
Computer algorithms judge the art by obvious and quantifiable parameters, such as the way the paint was laid on the canvas or the color composition. We ask questions such as who is in this image and what emotions are being portrayed in the scene. Computers still don't have that kind of talent. And story three is true. Researchers say that there are probably about 400,000 virtual gold farmers in Asia alone where most gold farming takes place. They play games such as World of Warcraft all day, accumulate goods in the game, then sell the goods to lazy or less skilled or too busy to play all day players elsewhere in the world, like here in the U.S., for real money. The going rate in World of Warcraft right now is $10 of real money for a 1,000 gold units, which is... Coincidentally, about the same as the dollar-to-yen ratio. For more, check out the article in the January issue of Scientific American magazine called Real Money from Virtual Worlds, also available on our website. And I'll be talking with Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina about virtual gold farming on the next episode of the podcast. All of which means that story one about Alan Alda playing Pauli and Montagnier is totally bogus. But what is true is that Alan Alda took on the role of Nobel physicist Richard Feynman in the play QED on Broadway, and he was real-life HIV researcher Robert Gallo in the HBO movie And the Band Played On, based on the book by Randy Schultz. Well, that's it for this week. Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Marietti Christina joins me on the next episode to talk about the entire January issue of the magazine, in addition to the Gold Farming article, which is available online right now, the whole issue, so check it out, especially if you'd like to know whether there might be life not only on other planets, but in other universes. That's all at www.scientificamerican.com, which also features the latest science news, blogs, videos, and slideshows. And if you follow us on Twitter as at Siam, S-C-I-A-M, you'll get a tweet anytime new content is posted to the site. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks again to Alan Alda, and thank you for clicking on us. 